Hello, and welcome to Drawing a Dialogue. My name is Kathy G. Johnson. I'm a cartoonist, scholar, and educator. And my name is E. Jackson, and I'm a cartoonist scholar. Of Drawing a Dialogue is a podcast that puts comics in a historical and educational context. So on this episode, we're going to be talking about the critical theory concept of the gaze. Hey, E, um, how would you summarize the gaze? The gaze is essentially the term we use in critical theory to talk about various power relationships between someone who is being looked at and who's looking. Gaze is a subject that has always kind of, um, like, it kind of goes back to, again, the classics, the classical era in terms of, like, critical theory. The gaze as we understand it now kind of started with uh, Lacan in the 1930s, building on the ideas of Sigmund Freud. Um, so it's very, it's, like, based in psychoanalysis. Where was Lacan? Uh, Lacan. French guy. Yeah, Lacan is French. Um, he was a psychoanalyst, and he would do seminars, building on Freud's ideas, essentially. Um, in the 1930s, he names what he calls the mirror stage, which essentially, uh, the idea that human identity is decentered until about 6 to 18 months when a child is able to recognize themselves in the mirror, an act which causes uh, jubilation, what he calls joissance. And the child will identify the image as the ideal I, uh, but because the actual body is chaotic and fragmented, there's a misrecognition, and this is the formulation of the ego, which goes to Freudian ego, superego, id, um, those divisions of self. He continues to develop his idea of the gaze. Um, he does a series of seminars of, about psychoanalysis in the 50s and the 60s. Is this still in France? Yeah, yeah. The, okay. the seminars are later typed up and translated in, like, the 60s. And published? Yeah, published. Cool. Yeah. Uh, I, I think I may have very briefly mentioned this in the higher culture episode, but uh, it, it was in the 60s, like, in America, when Laconian uh, ideas get sort of brought in and sort of transform how we do art criticism. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to talk about that myself. Yeah, perfect. Um, so in the 50s and the 60s, he does a series of seminars uh, about his, for developing his idea of the gaze, essentially. Specifically, uh, there's one that gets later published on the title of the gaze as Object Petit A. Essentially, he says that uh, visual information is never neutral, but constructed by both the subject who is a receiver and the object or visual test that is in a sense transmitting. Um, he's also developing his idea of the screen in this, which is um, he has this diagram of uh, the eye looking at something. So there's, if you would imagine, a half circle shape uh, and then a triangle with the point towards the eye and the base facing away from the eye. So like projecting looking. And then uh, um, when you say eye, is that E-Y-E or I? E-Y-E. Like, like me and... Okay. Yeah. <laughs> eye is in your eyeball. Um, the okay. the ideal eye is eye with a just the letter I. <laughs> to be clear. Yeah, that's why I got confused. Yeah. Um, so that's like the traditional diagram of sight. And his reverse, his revised diagram, um, and this is a definition from the University of Chicago glossary of media terms. Um, in Lacan's revised diagram, the traditional cone of vision with object at the wide end and the subject at the point is superimposed with a second cone. The second inverted cone locates the gaze at the point and the subject in the object position. At the center of the overlapping cones is the image screen. Uh, Lacan imagined this other gaze as that which emanates from the world, and he conceived of it as a violent threat to the subject. The subject, therefore, depends on the image screen to mediate the pulsatility and brilliance of the gaze that gazes back. Hmm. So his theory of the gaze is internalized and has to do with the relationship between the self and others. These ideas, his ideas of psychoanalysis, uh, sort of become the basis that modern art theory, film theory, etc. get based on. Um, and in 1975, 
Laura Mulvey publishes an essay uh, in the British media journal Screen called Visual Pleasures and the Narrative Cinema. And she uses the Freudian Laconian concept of phallocentricism and scopophilia. Scopophilia, according to Freud, is gaining pleasure from looking at the bodies of others as objects. And her argument is that because the film industry movies are written by men, directed by men, and shot by men, and assumed to be watched by men, the camera itself has become masculine. And pleasure in looking has been split between an active male presence and a passive female. Um, I wanted to point out, so this essay that you're talking about, or is it a book? It's in a journal. It's yeah. an essay. 1975. And these Laconian translations are from the 50s and 60s. So this is like a hyper recent theory that we're talking about. Yeah. Okay. See, most of the stuff that we've been talking about has been, has started with a much older history. This this is like super recent. It is. And uh, Laconian uh, theory is still like very prevalent in uh, film studies, especially, but like media studies. Cool. So she is making an argument uh, using... Uh, this is Laura Mulvey again? This is Mulvey. Okay. All right. Women can exist only in relation to castration and cannot transcend it. Women then stands in a patriarchal culture as a signifier for the male other bound by symbolic order in which man can live out his fantasies and obsessions through linguistic command by imposing on them the silent image of woman tied still to her place as bearer of meaning, not maker of meaning. So she's citing Freud's idea of castration anxiety, uh, which Lacan also uses as the basis of um, that idea of ideal I. It's I, I don't want to spend too much time on it It's because it's a very, like, it would take a lot of time that I don't have. But essentially, Mul Mulvey is saying that um, the, the eye of the camera is assuming a default male viewer and women cannot be viewers but can only receive the view. So she's the one who coins the term male gaze in this essay. Okay. So around the same time as this, uh, Michel Foucault was developing his own theories about gaze. He presents an idea called panopticism which comes from a 1791 book written by uh, Jeremy Bentham named Panopticon or the Inspection House, which was presented as a prison design. The ideal panopticon consists of an observation tower within a large circular courtyard ringed by cell blocks several stories high but only one room deep. Each cell should be occupied by only one surveillant who is subject to constant observation from the tower, yet the design of the panopticon simultaneously prevents communication between inmates. Ideally, the central tower is screened so that the inmates never know who, if anyone, is at the observatory at any particular time. So Foucault wrote in 1975, so this is the same, around the same year as the Mulvey, and it's tricky because Foucault, like uh, Lacan, is French, uh, so the dates differ between the actual publication and the uh, translation to English. Is Mulvey English or American? British, I think. Let me double check. Yeah, she works in Oxford. Um, but her this at this point, international like communication is such that it transforms American dialogue also. So this is relatively Eurocentric yeah. moving into North America. Okay. Yeah. So Foucault writes Discipline and Punish in uh, 1975, the French. It gets translated to English in 77, I believe. Um, and his argument is using this idea of the panopticon as a metaphor for sur state surveillance, essentially. Um, so he writes, hence the major effect of the panopticon to induce in the inmate a state of conscious and permanent visibility that assures the automatic functioning of power. So to arrange things that the surveillance is permanent in its effects, even if it is discontinuous in its action, that the perfection of power should tend to render its actual exercise unnecessary that this architectural apparatus should be a machine for creating and sustaining a power relation independent of the person who exercises it. In short, that the inmates should be caught up in a power situation of which they themselves are the bearers. So he calls this panopticism or the panoptic gaze. And this is a theory about the power of like authority, uh, right? So mm -hmm. the panopticon was originally conceived as a prison 
design, but it could be anything. It could be uh, a workshop. It could be a school. It could be society itself. The panoptic gaze is another term that gets used a lot in film and which can be applied to, I think, the idea of the male gaze in that it is sort of a panoptic gaze of itself. Uh, in that it's not like individual. So Lacan's was very like individualized, right? Like very internal and in, in, uh, individual. Um, Foucault is saying, um, seeing the ideal eye, yeah, the one on one, like in a mirror, yeah. Right? And okay. what Mulvey's doing is taking that internalized idea and applying it uh, in a societal sense. Um, it's applying it to a societal sense. Um, about reinforcing the gender binary and like gender yeah and applying gender to the view yeah yeah gaze right yeah. okay and Erfocos is externalized in these authorities and power systems um which like he says it is a type of configuration of bodies in space of distribution of individuals in relationship to one another of hierarchical organization of disposition centers and channels of power which be implemented in hospitals workshops schools and prisons so this goes to the idea of state, like institutionalized misogyny and racism in these things, um, which are their mm-hmm. own sort of panoptic gaze. So um, I, the society in the sense that like, like urban development can be made to, in order to be watching, like p- can be panoptic in that yeah. um, you can't get away from being policed and from getting away from the gaze, but it also extends to each other like we are gazing upon each other and policing each other is part of his argument as well yeah it's not just the power of authority but it's the power of authority and the gaze that is we internalize and therefore police each other with yes yeah because the whole point of the panopticon is that um you might not always be being watched but you believe you are so you're always performing for that gaze essentially so Mulvey isn't the only feminist media theorist to talk about the role of gaze. Obviously, she was just the first to coin the term male gaze. And gaze itself is a term that has a very broad range of theoretical applications describing power relationships uh, between different people, between like state and individual, etc. But uh, from sort of this point on, I'm going to be talking more specifically about Mulvey's male gaze and how that's like expanded since the 70s. And just to frame this, so this is this will have been happening during the second wave of feminism or the first yeah, wave? Yeah, this is the second wave second. feminist movement. Okay, cool. Just to, uh, I just wanted to frame that. Yeah, yeah. So the um this the the next scholar I'm going to talk about also is from that second wave feminist era, uh, Kaja Silverman, who is a art historian and critical theorist. Um. She has an argument in her book titled The Threshold of the Visible World, which I think kind of connects. She's talking about Lacan, but I think it also kind of connects back to Foucault and kind of summarizes the point I want to make about the gaze here. Um, So she writes, I would also like to suggest that Lacan invokes the camera in the context of discussing the gaze, not just because the camera, like the gaze, grasps with light, But due to its association with a true and objective vision, the camera has been installed ever since the early 19th century as the primary trope through which the Western subject apprehends the gaze. The female subject, in other words, is obliged to bear the burden of specularity so that the look of her male counterpoint counterpart can be aligned with the camera. And then she goes on to say, um... The screen of femininity is always more available to certain female subjects than to others. Although we have grown accustomed to thinking of the screen in terms of the disadvantages it imposes, it also implies certain limited privileges, and those privileges may be precluded by race, class, age, nationality, and other forms of social discrimination. So what she's saying is that, and she's she's talking about photography. Um, she also writes about like film and painting, but this particular is about photography is that in Europe and America, like European uh, North American uh, society, we view, we have placed the camera as a, uh, of a, something that only ever like shows the truth, right? Like it's an objective photograph, but because of that, it becomes sort of like the perfect metaphor for talking about this gaze, because the point is that there's no such thing as like a neutral look. So the camera's not, 
objective, quote unquote, because it's being wielded by people who have internalized and externalized forces acting upon them. Um, And furthermore, this has its own limitations because of the way that other uh, panoptic gazes interact with the male gaze, Uh, you know, racism, uh, class privilege, things like that. I also wanted to briefly mention Bell Hooks coined a term as a sort of a uh, criticism of the or critique of the male gaze, uh, which she calls the oppositional gaze. And this is, I'm going to read a summary from the Penn State uh, College of Liberal Arts uh, Gender Studies <laughs> resource. Um, mm-hmm. So they, the way they put it is, um, she offers the term to define visual relationships between white and black people. That is, in terms of the power relations discernible in the way white culture reduces and objectifies black people. Think, she says, of what happens when an angry child looks back defiantly at a scolding parent. Don't give me that look, the parent might say. Or else the parent might exert authority by saying, look at me when I talk to you. What that implies is that there is power in looking from both directions. When black slaves dared look back at their white masters, they were punished for being defiant or uppity. That look of resistance is the oppositional gaze, a visual relation that registers the subject's own power to look. So I just wanted to mention that briefly to point out that there there are other things at work with the male gaze beyond just a male female like a broad male female binary. Mm-hmm. One of the pitfalls of at least in my opinion, one of the pitfalls of Laconian Freudian analysis is that they are very heavily reliant on uh, the phallus as a signifier uh, and like very tied into that male body female body uh, binary mm-hmm. uh, that has its own whole bag of uh, limitations and worms. So <laughs> yeah. so far I've been talking about uh, male gaze, gaze in critical applications, but more specifically film and photography. So I'm going to pivot off that into symbolic forms of art, let's say, uh, like painting and <laughs> comics. Whoa. <laughs> well, I, okay. No, I'm going to talk I about did, I symbiotics. Gonna... I just, you're <laughs> symbolic <I> will... <laughs> art. Because... <laughs> You know what I mean? No, I mean, I'm I to- I'm 100% photograph- going to talk about semiotics. So yeah, sy- symbolic art. Sure, okay, cool. go for it. Sure. Okay, so I wanted to talk about Jean Berger's book, Ways of Seeing, which is about how, as you might guess from the title, uh, we gaze at art. <laughs> he speaks a lot about the male gaze in Ways of Seeing. What era? What year is this? I want to say around the same... 72. Okay, great. Perfect. Yeah. So actually, this is a little bit before Mulvey coins the actual phrase male gaze, but he is talking about the same things. Cool. Um, But he's talking about it specifically in Renaissance paintings and uh, paintings in general, like how women are painted. To be born a woman has been to be born within an allotted and confined space into the keeping of men. The social presence of women has developed as a result of their ingenuity and living under such tutelage within such a limited space. But this has been at the cost of a woman's self being split in two. A woman must continually watch herself. She is almost continually accompanied by her own image of herself. One might simplify this by saying men act and women appear. Men look at women. Women watch themselves being looked at. This determines not only most relations between men and women, but also the relationship of women to themselves. The surveyor of woman in herself is male, the surveyed female. Thus, she turns herself into an object, and most particularly an object of vision, a sight. Um, So he's saying, again, sort of the same things as Mulvey, as Kasia Silverman, as all these people who are talking about how women are looked at by men, because these... These photographs, these films, these art objects are being made by men for an assumed male audience. And so women are in a position of um, they can receive communications, but they are unable to return that line of communication. Yeah. So uh, this also sort of overlaps with what I was saying about the Panopticon and Foucault, in which you're being looked at, but then you, as Berger is saying, women are also uh they are also watching themselves so there's also like a policing of self mm-hmm. because you are being 
gazed upon. Yeah. There's one other passage I wanted to read from Berger because I thought it would it was a very interesting in that it kind of actually applies to a thing that happened in comics within the past would that be five years? But the essential ways the essential way of seeing women, the essential use to which their images are put, has not changed. Women are depicted quite differently from men. Not because the feminine is different from the masculine, but because the ideal spectator is always assumed to be male, and the image of the woman is designed to flatter him. If you have any doubt that this is so, make the following experiment. Choose from this book an image of a traditional nude, transform the woman into a man, either in your mind's eye or by drawing on the reproduction. Then notice the violence which that transformation does, not to the image, but to the assumptions of a likely viewer. So when he says violence, he doesn't mean uh, violence like uh yeah he means trans the the like sort of um aggressive transformation of your perspective yes yes that's what he means and i wanted to cite that specifically because such an experiment happened in comics in 2012 which is called the hawkeye initiative so a lot of comic scholarship uh about the male gaze because there is a lot but a lot of it deals specifically with uh, superhero comics. So I don't want to spend too much time on that, but... <laughs> Superheroes get enough attention. Yeah, it's easy to find there. Uh, I, I, I'd i rather look at other comics for scholarship purposes, but I felt it's worth talking about the Hawkeye Initiative because it is directly that experiment that Berger talks about. And Susan Scott, uh, who is a scholar who talks a lot about uh, fandom and comics, um, wrote an essay called The Hawkeye Initiative, Pinning Down Transformative Feminisms in Comic Book Culture Through Superhero Crossplay Fan Arts. This was published in Cinema Journal, Volume 55. Um, and she writes, These distinctions between being looked at and staring, physical passivity and activity, Dyer suggests, means that what is at stake with pinups is not just male and female sexuality, but male and female power. This is where the fanish canard of but male superheroes also have hypermasculine physiques and are costumed in skin-tight outfits breaks down, and the potential of a site like the Hawkeye Initiative or crossplay fan art generally reveals itself. It is not simply about making visible the amount of skin superheroine costumes reveal. It is also about noting the subtle distinctions between how the equally muscular and kinetic bodies of male and female superheroes are posed and what their gaze implies. Okay, explain the Hawkeye Initiative. Yes, so the uh, the Hawkeye Initiative is a website that was started in 2012 that is still active today. It's a Tumblr, anyone can submit to it, where uh, fans, essentially, and some pros, but it's mostly fans, um, take predominantly cover images of female characters that have been posed in very male gazy pinupy ways and redraw it with a male hero posed the exact same way it's called the hawkeye initiative because it began with people using hawkeye specifically but nowadays people use any male character is hawkeye a superhero Oh, I don't know. <laughs> yes, Hawkeye is um, <laughs> Hawkeye is one of the Avengers. But this, uh, so the Hawkeye Initiative uh, is a good example of this act of exposing the male gaze by highlighting the differences in how female characters are depicted on the page, essentially. And this is an exercise that Berger says in Ways of Seeing. Right. And yeah, okay. so I thought that was interesting that like 40 years ago, uh, Berger is suggesting this very action. He's referring to paintings, but then possibly independently of that, uh, a group of fans came up with their own version of the experiment. Um, and it is true. It does really toy with your perception of how these characters are drawn. I, the point of it is that it shows that we ex we accept certain things. Like when you look at a female character drawn in a certain way, it's easier to accept that because there's already such an established canon of uh, female characters being depicted for that gaze. Um, so the violence that Berger is referring to is when you see a male character in that sort of posing, it disrupts our understanding of how we are looking. Okay. So I also wanted to touch very briefly on the Women in Refrigerators website, which is another example of comics kind of reacting to this 
idea of the male gaze, uh, women in refrigerators refers to plot. Um, so it's a website that was begun by a group of uh, feminist fans in the 1999, uh, most notably by Gail Simone, who is the one who came up with the name Women in Refrigerators. And what it essentially started out is, is Gail uh, Simone wrote a list of all the female characters she could think of that had been maimed, killed, or depowered. And she wrote a little letter about it, just kind of asking if this was normal and what this meant for the industry. And she sent it out to prose. And so the website collects the list of female characters that have been maimed, killed, or depowered. Also, it collects um, responses that she received from industry pros. And it's an interesting thing because it started out as just sort of this fan project, but now Women in Refrigerators has sort of become a trope. Yeah. Can you explain where that title comes from? Yes. So the title Women in Refrigerators refers to an incident that happened in Green Lantern number 54, which was published in 1994, in which um, Green Lantern comes home and finds that his girlfriend has been killed and stuffed into a refrigerator. And you are treated to an image of like the refrigerator open with her body inside of it. Um. So this is nineteen. So that comic's from nineteen ninety four. Yeah. And this website's from nineteen ninety nine. Yeah. The the overlapping with um Frederick Wortham's arguments is like very interesting. Yeah, I actually was gonna mention that uh, when I was talking about Lacan. It is really interesting to note that uh, so F- Wortham was working with psychoanalysis. He was also a psychoanalyst. And he was writing in the 50s, 40s and 50s about comics. And the arguments he makes in his writings about comics about how women are depicted are these same arguments. Um, he's not using the word gays. He was not involved in art criticism spheres. Also, you said that this was only translated in the 50s and 60s in North yeah. America. And he was... Uh, German and North American. Yeah, he would have been a little bit um like missed the boat. So, but he's talking about he's using psychoanalysis um to make a similar point that these feminists would later be making about uh how it is harmful for female characters to be depicted in ways that are obviously meant just to be for male pleasure. We have a our Frederick Wortham episode is episode four. Yeah. You can go find that. So um there's that. And then I also want to talk about specifically to go back to my point about the panoptic gaze and in comics even, like how these how the male gaze affects outside of just media. Right, because like it, it's not just that it's an issue within media itself; it's an issue that like it creates issues in uh, society. Um, so this is Suzanne Scott again. This is an essay called "Fangirls in Refrigerators: The Politics of Invisibility in Comic Book Culture" from uh, the Transformative Works and Cultures Journal, uh, Volume Thirteen. Um, and this was published in 2013. When women are mentioned as inhabitants of the subcultural space of the LCS, which stands for Local Comic Shop. Uh, either in scholarly or conversational accounts, they tend to be framed as highly visible precisely because of their pervasive framing as subcultural interlopers. In this panoptic model, visibility is not desirable, but rather a trap that induces a state of conscious and permanent visibility that assures the automatic functioning of power. So she is directly quoting Foucault uh, to talk about how female fans of comics are treated in comic spaces. Yeah. She goes on to say, um, though it is clearly popular to channel Laura Mulvey and these critiques of the male gaze of mainstream comic book art and perhaps comic book culture by extension, a 1979 interview with science fiction author Samuel R. Delaney in Comics Journal is quick to differentiate between the respective gazes of film, television, and comics. Privileging the gaze of comics over other media forms, Delaney cited unprecedented control the medium offers. Viewers can control the speed their gaze travels through the medium. They can control how far away or close they hold the page, uh, whether they go backwards and regaze. And going back on a comic book is a very different process from going back on a novel to reread a previous paragraph or chapter. Arguing that the nature of the medium renders the reader a co-producer of the text, Delaney's notion of the regaze, while compelling, doesn't address the issue that women are rarely considered in these terms. 
Thus, despite comics' great potential, they still fall prey to many of the same issues Mulvey identified with respect to film and perhaps exacerbate the male gaze via this gendered control of the regazing and the bodies of female superheroes. This unprecedented control of the gaze also evokes the panoptic power of the prison guard, with superheroines erased in their panels-slash-cells, performing the state of constant visibility for an invisible male spectator. So I do want to emphasize again that this is not unique to mainstream comics. It's just that um, most comic scholarship focuses on that sphere. And women have been traditionally uh, marginalized into indie spaces as creators and as readers. Um, Trina Robbins, who was a, a member of the underground comics movement. She's a historian. Yep. Yeah, she's a historian. Um, She talks about this in an article called Gender Differences in Comics, which is a pretty decent overview of the ways that women have been depicted differently, starting with 1909 uh, George McManus, his strip Nibsy the Newsboy. Um, and it will be cited in the show notes. I definitely recommend reading it for like a pretty comprehensive overview. Um, I do. I sort of I sort of want to jump back a little bit and sort of point out. Oh, yeah, go ahead. I want to point out in your quote that Scott um, says, Suzanne Scott, um, Delaney is a gay man. Yeah. So when she's talking about the female body and the male body, Delaney is not necessarily referring to heterosexual gays. Um, I think that's important to point out if you're critiquing him. So. Yeah, no, and I think, again, this is an issue with the word gays meaning so many different things. I'm The way he talks about gays in that quote sounds like he's literally referring to, like, the, the gaze the look <laughs> um yeah literally just looking yeah the, yeah okay yeah. i i do i yeah i i don't take issue with that quote but i did like the yeah her point is good i'm just like a little like uh, yeah the no, that's cool <laughs> yeah no that's fair that's fair yeah i think she was just using that as sort of a sounding board totally for yeah like how women are yeah in comics anyway trina robbins writes this is, again, in Gender Differences in Comics from the Image and Narrative Journal, and this is referring to women in independent spaces. And this is from 2002. Although the ratio of female comic readers to male comic readers continues to be comparatively small, the, the majority of women who do read comics tend to gravitate to the indies. They not only buy comics by women, such as Action Girl, Castle Waiting, and the aforementioned Art Babe, but they also read comics like Dan Cloud's 8-Ball, in which the two protagonists are young women realistically portrayed. A section of 8-Ball was adapted into a film, Ghost World, which is also very popular with female moviegoers. Perhaps due to the fact that more women are drawing comics today than ever before and drawing them for indies, the field of independent or small press comics has become feminized. Um, so I don't know if I necessarily agree with that in contemporary terms, but her Trina, as a historian, is making the point that traditionally women comic book readers and writer uh, creators tend to be uh drawn to indie spaces and also sort of pushed out of mainstream spaces mm. okay great thanks e um now it's time for my segment um which is education situation in my segment i decided to sort of talk about how the gaze is a critical art interpretation okay by that i mean to use the gaze as a theory um, to teach students how to look at and consume visual culture. Uh, what I want to do is talk about teaching students to be critical consumers, right? So uh, students to critically understand when they view an image, what they are bringing and how to consume it critically, mm. right? And so what I found with a lot of the research is yeah. that a lot of the focus is on the education of art teachers and not the education of students. Right. So it's sort of to reframe how art teachers are taught to be art teachers and what they are bringing into the classroom. Yeah. So I'm going to sort of jump around a little bit here, um, mostly because when it comes to I mean, when it comes to really anything, when it comes to information and thought processes, it's, n it's not really particularly linear. So I'm going to sort of start with this article from 2004, which is titled Art Interpretation as Subject Constitution, written by Laura Trophy. Mm -hmm. So this was a research article on the role of critical art history in teacher education. So teacher education is the education of teachers. Mm -hmm. It starts to get sort of like a mouthful. So a lot of art educators think that their job is to teach students the practice of art, right? So it's just like how to make art. How to paint, how to draw, how to use clay, 
And art history is often taught as something that is only that only trained art historians can do. Right. That history is a series of facts and that art is not open to the interpretation of the viewer. Right. So like art education and art history education are extremely compartmentalized. Mm. Right. So this article is attempting to take critical art history and sort of push it into art education. Right. So critical art history, which emerged on the margins of the discipline in the early 70s. Okay, so it's sort of overlapping with what E was talking about. So it's sort of bringing in this critical eye to the discipline of art history. Mm. Um, so it's emphasizing the subject and the discursive role of art interpretation. But this has not had much of an impact on the curricula of art education, um, mm. museum, exhibition, or publishing. Right. So critical art historians have advocated for a new type of history not centered on the objects, but on how subjects can make use sense of them yeah. and how making sense of the artworks affects subjectivity. Okay, so let's go over the definitions of subjective and objective again. We went over them. Shoot, what episode was that, E? I want to say two. Um, what was the topic? Two was when we did high culture, low culture. Yeah, totally. Okay. So subjective is based on the influence of personal feelings, tastes, and opinions, and objective is not influenced by personal feelings or opinions right mm. okay so critical art history is how to make sense of artworks with subjectivity in this article the article i'm talking about the one written by trophy mm -hmm. she talks about how the gaze can be used as the key idea for critical understanding okay so discursive approach to the interpretation of artworks understood as a social and semiotic process between art objects and subject interpreters. Mm. Okay, so I mentioned this during E's thing with the semiotic relationship between art. So what art educators are usually given is that art history is just a series of facts, right? So Picasso painted this during this. He was influenced by African masks. These are just the facts of this painting. Yeah. Right. But what critical art history is saying is that you can use your gaze mm -hmm. with like critical understanding. Okay. Um, so she talks about how this is a discursive social and semiotic process. Okay. Yeah. So semiotic is the, is the interesting word to use here. Okay. And this sort of relates to the cultural studies and it relates to a lot of what Foucault and a lot of what E was talking about. Yeah. Okay. So, so semiotics is the study or science of signs, right? Mm -hmm. So there is a signifier, which is the image, the picture. And then the signified meaning within the symbols. And these two things have an arbitrary relationship between the two, right? Okay? Yeah. So, like, the, here's an example. The red octagon is the signifier, and stop is the signifier. Yes. Right? So the, the, it doesn't necessarily mean stopped. I wanted to sort of talk about how Scott McCloud talks about symbols within understanding comics. Yeah. He defines images... Um, used in comics as communication tools. Um, he uses the word icon instead of symbol mm. for images that have a signified meaning, right? So that's like the stop sign. Um, he purposely says that symbol is too loaded a term for him to use and creates a new definition for images using the word pictures, which he says has a direct relationship between the idea and what they are symbolizing. So therefore, a picture of a cow is a cow. It doesn't mean anything else. Yes. <laughs> it is simply the cow. These are his terms. So what Trophy in this article is suggesting that the that using the gaze is a semiotic way of viewing images, reading and understanding symbols within the pictures themselves. Okay. Yeah, and I do want to um since we're t since you define semiotic so nicely, talk about uh, when I I talked to you before about the phallus as a signifier, and that's ties into the same thing. In Laconian terms, the phallus is the signifier for lack, which ties back into that castration anxiety uh that mulvey uses to define the male gaze yeah and that's there's probably cultures in the world in which the red octagon does not mean stop yeah exactly that's a that's a very um eurocentric point of view the phallus as a signifier i mean mm -hmm. so to quote this article so here he, these are questions that you can ask as a student teacher mm -hmm. um who is the subject of the gaze and who is subjected to it and concerning the interpreter the viewer um, the gaze refers to the possibility of subjective reconstruction. How can I reconsider my subjectivity after making sense of this work? 
how do I want to position myself in front of similar visual images, right? Mm-hmm. So the critical art history and the study of the gaze provided useful theoretical tools to support teachers to interpret not just high art samples, but also to give contextualized and historical sense to popular images. In both pictures, the gaze is a key idea can be an example of how emotion, desire, fantasy, discontinuity, ambiguity, and paradox do not have to be erased from the process of learning and interpreting visual narratives. Okay, I'm going to move into this article titled Seven Principles for Visual Culture Education by Paul Duncan. Mm -hmm. This is from Art Education, which is the property of the National Art Education Association. This was published in 2010. So the NAEA, which I'm going to mention later. So that's why I wanted to say it now. Okay. So a lot of art educators are still using the seven principles, which are formal elements. And we can all pretty much guess what these are, right? So this is like line, color, Mm. shape harmony yes yes (laughs) right the color wheel these are the things that are have were on your wall of your art classroom right i do have very strong memories of those (laughs) (laughs) and what paul duncan is suggesting is that there's seven principles for visual culture education rather than just formal elements this is cultural so the seven that he is proposing is power ideology representation seduction, gaze, intertextuality, and multimodality. I placed this 2010 article after the 2004 article, but I did want to say what the critical art history article was talking about is proposing this issue. Okay. It's proposing saying that critical art history is not being used in the art education classroom. Right. And what Duncombe is saying is here are these principles that we should be bringing to our students. Yeah. Okay. So I wanted to sort of go just go over a few of them. So um, power, like we were saying with Foucault, it's huge. Power is central to a consideration of imagery because all images involve an assertion of ideas, values, and beliefs that serve the interests of those for whom they are made political, social, and economic. And audiences in their turn exercise the power of interpretation. Mm-hmm. Okay, so he's granting power into the viewer, which is the gaze, right? Yeah. Images constitute different agendas. Viewers are not passive receptacles, but active discriminators. The producer's preferred meaning of an image is as easily rejected as accepted by viewers, right? So the power of an image could have meaning that this cultural material and this corporations produce these images into visual culture, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And they can benefit with social stratification. Mainstream forms of cultural production typically carry ideologies consistent with the interests of those in power. But if we teach our students to be discriminative viewers, right. that power can be rejected or accepted. Okay, This is why this is important. Mm-hmm. So another principle that he proposes is ideology, which is that images are sites of ideological struggles. Images offer ideologies that can be racist, sexist, xenophobic, ageist, or marginalized people with physical disabilities. But images can also offer support for families, inspire ideals, and work to conserve the environment. Ideologies can be conservative, reactionary, and progressive. So this represents a viewpoint that can be incontestable truth. Okay. And then for representation, uh, a quote that I pulled that I thought was really good is that this is when you're a viewing, this is like a, the privileged for what is represented versus what is marginalized mm-hmm. um, to look for not only what is represented, but how, but also what is marginalized and left out altogether. Again, these are skills that we want to be instilling to our art students, not just how to mix color theory, right? Yes. We want them to understand representation and we want them to understand ideology and the power of image. And then, of course, we want them to also understand the gaze. Yes. Right. While the foregoing principles primarily concern the images that we look at, the gaze concerns how we look at the images and the circumstances from which we look. It refers to our predisposition to see things in certain ways, what we bring to images, and the relationships we form with them. Considering the gaze is a way to understand ourselves as individuals and as a society. Are our own gazes sexist, racist, and so on? 
the gaze offers a significantly different orientation to more common approaches to fine art, which tend to focus on artists and on describing, interpreting, and evaluating their work without necessarily considering ourselves as the viewers. Sometimes considering the gaze means reflecting on whether the very act of our looking implicates us in a violation of the subject of our gaze. The gaze throws a spotlight on us as the viewers and our context. So what I'm talking about and what Duncan is talking about is empowering students to control how they are looking at things. Okay. Because mm-hmm. you can't necessarily control an image. But you can control the way that you are viewing it and consuming it. Yeah. This is like a extremely broad applications, right? So we're talking about, we're not just talking about fine art. We're not just talking about comics. We're not just talking about images or photographs or anything. We are talking also talking about seeing people, like real people on the street. Yeah. And how we view them. Yeah, that's really important. to. These are extremely vital skills that children need to be taught. Yeah. Is that they have control over how they are viewing each other and us, you know? Yeah. So there was a professor that I found. Her work is talking about taking the grays and taking critical understanding in art educators and therefore art students and using this education of critical thought to have students of marginalized experience have better experiences and better education. Yeah. So her name is Melissa Crum. She's at the Ohio State University. I watched a TED Talk that she did. Um, I'm, we'll link it in the show notes. Um, and she also has an article called Reasserting Humanity Through the Liberatory Gaze. Um, this is from 2012. Okay. I want to read portions from her abstract. Okay. So the act of critically looking can be a method used to consider alternative ways of conceptualizing marginalized cultures and ethnicities. By engaging in a series of inquiries about the subject of an image, the spectator can form a more comprehensive representation of the subject, thus preparing post-secondary students to discuss and interpret visual culture. Mm. This work proposes that a self-reflective educator's personal narratives and insight can assist in creating an arts-based, critically thinking, learning atmosphere. Such an atmosphere encourages students to move beyond the realms of their cultural experiences by utilizing a pedagogy that troubles social power relations and the narrative students may have been taught and socialized to internalize. Hmm. So her argument is that art educators and like museum educators are perfectly situated in which to educate critical thinking. Yeah. Right? Because that is like a huge part of what art is, is um, re-examining our own thought processes and how we are viewing everything and the world and each other and to instill that critical mindset into our students. We are primely positioned for that. And I'm speaking as an art educator, but I also believe that this is true for artists and cartoonists. We are all in a prime position to be presenting critical thought and critical analysis in the work that we're doing. Mm -hmm. So in her TED Talk, Melissa Crum sort of talks about how educators, there's there's sort of diversity training for teachers. And diversity training for teachers is focused on how to involve marginalized experiences in their education Mm. classroom basically there's sort of three types that she breaks down there's the conservative diversity training conservative diversity training is the assimilation perspective in which that students of marginalized experiences should assimilate into the mainstream Mm -hmm. okay there's also the liberal diversity training liberal diversity training is a perspective in which you tolerate difference okay okay and then the third and probably the best one is the critical diversity training which requires teachers to investigate influences of power oppression dominance and inequity that manifests in the classroom and extends to federal policy Mm. okay so it's not just it's not assimilating it's not tolerating It's investigating and critically trying to understand how power manifests in the classroom and in culture in general. Right. Yeah. 
So art is perfectly situated for critical self-reflection, storytelling, and peer dialogue. And dialogue is what you want from your classroom. Critical dialogue. Yeah. And so, therefore, people can reflect on their own biases that they may have. Because this is, we are in an, this North American culture in which it, there's a white supremacy. There is a patriarchy. People are marginalized and pushed to the side. And so, to bring the examination of the gaze into your classroom is to begin to think critically about biases that this culture may have implicitly given you and your students. So I did want to sort of go into a bit. We haven't talked about BART yet, um, but BART is also part of this group of um, French philosophers that Foucault is a part of. So to go back to Melissa Crumb's article, Reasserting Humanity Through the Liberatory Gaze, um, she says that the spectator's gaze can be used to create alternative stories that humanized marginalized bodies. She uses Na Bart's 1977 theory of the photographic message for her purposes within this article. So what Bart's explains his theory in relation to journalism photography, where the image is privileged and see seen as factual evidence, as E has talked about, right? What was that you said? The factual evidence of a photo? Oh, that was um, Kaja Silverman. What year was that? Because Bartz is talking in 1977. He sort of invented this. The Threshold of the so Visible wondering... World was published in um, 1996. Yeah, so she's probably referring to Bart. Um, So he's talking about how journalism photography, where the image is privileged and seen as factual evidence that substantiates information contained in an accompanying text. This is interesting because this is image text. Yeah. <laughs> this, is, so this is comics. In a lot of sense, right? So it's the relationship. This is multimodal. So it's the relationship of image and and words. Yes. Yes. So conversely, Bartz argues that the former image text relationship has been inverted and the value of the text supersedes the image and can alter how the viewer connotes the photograph. This juxtaposition of image and text recognizing how one informs the other may be most apparent in museums and galleries. However, in these spaces, the image is not supplemental, but the main focus. The theory of the photographic message explains that the importance of considering the text used to describe the image and where the artwork resides in order to understand how text can transform the image and the purpose of the image. Mm. So using Bart's connotation procedures as a framework, we can question the supposed universal understandings of marginalized bodies... Crumb goes on to say, meaning does not reside in this photograph. It is constructed and produced by a signifying practice, right? Semiotics and signifying yeah. that makes things mean through a language system. The meaning in the symbol symbolic function because the image stands or signifies a concept outside of itself. We use the signifying practice to generate representations. Representation is the production of the meaning of the concepts in our minds through language. It is the link between the concepts and language which enables us to refer to things. The meaning of a sign is constructed and fixed by a code. Meaning is dependent on varying culturally based codes and the relationship between the photograph signifier and its meaning signified is arbitrary. As a result, from culture to culture, meaning can never be truly finite or universal. Mm -hmm. I'm going to I keep jumping around because I just want to keep pivoting to comics. <laughs> I'm going to pivot to this interesting article, Distributed Identity. Networking Image Fragments in Graphic Memoirs. Mm. So this is in Studies in Comics, 2010. It was written by Adriel Anna Mitchell. So this article is about um, graphic memoir. So it's talking about um, autobiographical comics, graphic novels that cartoonists draw. And they are drawing themselves and their bodies, right? So they're creating a, an image of themselves so they have, there's the gaze upon themselves, mm -hmm. but then there's the gaze of the reader as well. So it's an interesting article, but the part that I focused on was this part of this background. So she's talking about backgrounds in comics. Um, so here's some quotes. Uh, as Baudrillard celebrates a gazed upon scene or object 
can condense and express unconscious knowledge. The man wanders among symbols in the glades. Importantly, these images that tap directly into the unconscious do not need translation into language. Right, so this is a semiotic translation into language that we, have, we were just talking about. They stand as originals and can be presented just so in a graphic narrative, as they cannot in text-only literature. Unmediated by a critical linguistic filter, the images, in some sense, are sanctioned, allowed to move their way from selected picture drawn by another to aspect of self, to graphic memoir element ready to be received by others. Few of us could forget Scott McCloud's early formation in understanding comics of the difference between Western comics and Japanese manga. Mm -hmm. Japanese manga con asserts McCloud devote far more attention to the rendering of scenery than they do their Western counterparts. In many Japanese works, figures are sketched simply and generally, while landscapes receive full, detailed tr mm -hmm. treatments. It talks about how Jiro Taniguchi author of the splendidly meditative The Walking Man and other nouveau manga, argues for a more substantive interpretation of the gesture of a highly detailed environment. Teneguchi suggests that the ground does not value neutral, objective space, serving only as a backdrop for figures. Rather, it carries effective weight of its own. I think that even settings are imbued with emotion and that in a way those are the also characters in the story. Thus, I want my readers to look at them carefully. Interestingly, McLeod's more recent theorizing on the figure-ground relationship does not really allow for Taniguchi's compelling assertion that setting can convey mood and emotion and thus function iobiographically. So here's a quote um, from McLeod. The lines you use to draw a character are different from the lines you, you use to draw the environments they live in. When readers see the lines that make up a character's eyes, for example, they're looking beyond those eyes in the thoughts and emotions revealed in them. They might even feel a sense of participation in the character's inner life and an investment in his or her fate. When they see the lines that make up a brick wall, they're more likely to wonder how the wall feels to the touch or notice how the shadows fall on it. The wall begones to the realm of senses not to the realms of emotion or identity. And then here the author continues. I find Taniguchi's position more convincing than McLeod's here. I believe that some comic artists maximize the potential of emotion and identity-infused scenery. Such careful, even reverent depictions alerts the reader to the visual sensitivity of its observer. So if, despite himself, he offers us the drawn recreation of this reverential gaze his atmospheric lines carry the emotion of that gaze as surely as his three self-depictions do. Indirectly, these elements of setting contain autobiographical content. Okay, so what I pivoted to is sort of talking about how, so McLeod's argument for pictures versus icons, right? Mm -hmm. Is that pictures symbolize just themselves. A cow is a cow. What Melissa Crum is saying is that meaning is constructed and produced by signifying practice that makes things mean something. Mm -hmm. And what this article on graphic memoir is saying is that when the artist is drawing the environment, they are drawing their gaze of that environment and recreating the emotions in which the viewer is to gaze the environment, right? So they are embodying the, ga the emotional gaze in which they want the readers to have, right? So it's less like McLeod's argument is really like you were saying Laconian, Laconian, yeah. In that it's really individualized. Mm -hmm. And what Mitchell's argument is that the pictures in a comic book are not just for the the gaze of the viewer. <laughs> it's more of a group effort in which the the drawing is not just for the viewer's consumption, but it is a collective experience in which the viewer is consuming the gaze of the author themselves. So mm -hmm. the, the, the beauty of the environment is, is meant to show you the emotions of the character and the emotions of the author, and it's most meant to imbue emotions in you. Yeah. And I think that's rather beautiful. <laughs> and so to, to find some sort of conclusion to the education of art students to think critically and to use the and to analyze their gaze and what they bring to an image 
and how they have the power to reinterpret images in ways that they want to see fit. Mm. There are aspects. This is so. This is the NAEA, which are the National Art Education Association. In 2014, they released the National Standards for Visual Arts to guide art education in the K through 12 arenas. I do want to say that it is somewhat controversial. Uh, education standards are just like common core standards mm. um, to say that every student needs to learn and understand this and be at this level and this is how we define this level mm-hmm. is um, problematic. Right. But I personally enjoy referring to the National Standards for Visual Arts um, because I think they do an interesting job in not just talking about the formal elements of art education but they also talk about multiple other categories. And so their four main categories are creating, and then there's also presenting, responding, and connecting. And so I sort of just looked through these standards to see if there was any sort of um, encouragement in which to teach your students uh, critical understanding and critical understanding of their gaze. Um, So there's sort of, I only sort of found two, there's like, I don't know, hundreds of boxes and it all, depends on age group right so it's like k through 12 so there's like preschoolers all the way up to advanced level high schoolers right okay so there's a full range and the only two aspects of what could contain critical interpretation of art are these two boxes right so within creating so this is creating a piece of art Mm -hmm. sort of the classical concept of what art education is at the high school advanced level one Standard says that students should be able to visualize and hypothesize to generate plans for ideas and directions for creating art and design that can affect social change. Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so this is like, like oh, uh, they are, create art in which to affect social change, period. Okay. And then another one was within the presenting category. And this is also on the high school level. Um, students should be able to make, explain, and justify connections between artists or artwork and social, cultural, and political history. Mm. Okay, I find this one. I find this one uh, rather interesting, right? Um, so students should be able to make these connections, explain their connections. However, what this does not neither none of these do is empower students to understand that their gaze can be critical that their gaze can reinterpret what they are viewing. Mm. And I think that that is something that needs to become an important aspect of art education and especially sort of following along what Melissa Crum is saying in confronting and talking critically about how students can view people who are different than them with biases. Right. And I... And to be clear, I am referring to racism, sexism, xenophobia, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And Melissa Crum is saying that art educators are are primed and ready to be the ones to educate the next generation in confronting these and instilling change. And that's that's what I hope art educators do. The end. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's interesting. Um, okay. I sort of, yeah, I sort of jumped around a lot because um, I did want to talk about Signa. I mean, you talk about it too because it's sort of, it has an intersection with cultural studies. Yes. Right? And media studies. Yeah, no, semiotics is like a really big part of media studies. Although it's kind yeah, of so out I of wanted date to now. talk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's why I think this Melissa Crumb stuff is really, I mean, it feels really relevant and because it's so, um, being able to, help students understand so like a lot of diversity training for educators has a lot to do with educating white teachers and white administrators to not perpetuate power against their students of marginalized experience right and what a lot of this education does not focus on is how white teachers can talk to their white students about confronting their privilege Mm. and how to not shut their students down and be open to understanding and critical understanding of their position. And I think that is something that is extremely important. Yeah. Um, 
although the experience obviously the experience of marginalized students is in the classroom is extremely important as well Mm -hmm. a white teacher should not only be able to um, give great education to their students of marginalized experience and their students of color but a white teacher should also be able to talk to their white students about privilege and complicity and how to um, confront those things yes cool all right um it's now time for letters to the editor which is our segment it drawing a dialogue in which we bring in articles to supplement uh previous topics or actually have some letters to the editor which we have this time yeah yeah we do so i have the emails open so i will just i guess yeah i'm, I'm sort of throwing it to you because i did not <laughs> yeah no problem um so first uh greg davis sent us a comic about it's called yasha lizard buys a painting and it's about uh it's like a short comic about gallery art but it features clement greenberg as a weasel um as a primary character so we will link that in the show notes as well and the comic is by christina stepetic so thanks so much for sending that in greg um, so what I was just going to say is that he sent that to us in reference to episode two, which is our history of high culture and gatekeeping in the arts. Our other email is from Joe Butchelts, uh, who wrote in asking about motion comics or comics that would include animated elements um, as an episode suggestion. And um, that definitely overlaps with some of the other things we want to talk about and is an interesting subject on its own. Um, So we will definitely look into that, and we love getting episode suggestions and anything that you want to send us responses to what we say or Mm -hmm. comics that you like or anything, Um, and you can email us at drawingadialogue at gmail.com. Yeah, cool. Um, I want to say thanks to Downtown Boys for their use of their song, uh, Wave of History. Um, It's off their album, Full Communism. Um, you can uh, follow us on Twitter at Draw Dialogue, um, and you can follow me personally at Kathy G. John. And you can follow me at Ehecha, uh, which is E-H-E-T-J-A. Sick. So what are you reading, E? I've been uh, watching, uh, I've been sort of... I've been sort of focused on getting ready for SPX, so the only thing I've really engaged with is um, this French-Korean animation called Miraculous Ladybug uh, that's really cute, and it reminds me a lot of Totally Spies, actually. Aww. <laughs> so, Kathy, what are you reading? Um, I've been reading uh, Taproot by Kizzy Young. Um me and E went to FlameCon in August, this August. Um, and so there I met Kizzy and I got to buy, um, I think they had Taproot out. I think, I don't think it's out yet. It might be out now. Um, but uh, Taproot is a very sweet, uh, supernatural queer romance um, between a gardener and a ghost. If you want to learn more about it without any spoilers, uh, I wrote about it in as part of my reading recommendations list, which is on comicarted.com. Um, so you should check that out if you're interested. Super beautiful. It is. Uh, so this was Drawing a Dialogue. Um, I'm Kathy G. Johnson. And I'm E. Jackson. Um, and farewell to our intrepid volunteers. See you next time. Bye.